BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, this is George Chen, and you are listening to SupDoc, a show about documentaries. Usually we just talk about documentaries with totally unqualified people, but today... We actually have two filmmakers here in the house with us, and we've got the film team behind Feels Good Man, which is the story, I would say, of Pepe the Frog slash Matt Fury, uh, both. And if you have not heard of Pepe the Frog, whoa, you are in for a treat. You're going to learn a lot today. Uh, With us, our director, first-time director, Arthur Jones. Hello, Arthur. Hey, George. It's good to be here. Yeah. And... Giorgio Angelini, another fellow Giorgio. Yes. A fellow George. <laughs> a fellow Angelini. Uh, you're ganging up on me. And yeah. you are the producer co-writer. Is that your mm-hmm. title? Sure. Yeah. Well, Giorgio did a lot of stuff. I mean, he wrote some of the music for it. He shot a lot of it. Um, yeah. Just like a switch hitter mm-hmm. situation. And you guys have worked before on mm-hmm. another film is how you end up uh, getting to know each yeah, other? Yeah, Giorgio made a film called Owned, A Tale of Two Americas that's about uh, post-war housing policy in America, and I did all the animation on it. Actually, so that's the way we met. Yeah, yeah. I watched it last night just oh, really? to kind of like get oh, uh, nice. in the zone of like seeing like how you guys work together. And, <laughs> and uh, it's very relevant to a lot of issues. I just went to my first tenants union meeting. Hell yeah. Uh, I just... Uh, Saw another book recently. Uh, I'm doing book reviews on this documentary <laughs> podcast. What a, you guys don't literary. You don't need to read. Uh, but let's talk about Feels Good Man. I uh, have followed the history of like I had early comics of Matt Fury as I had the Boys Club like black and white zines and that particular scene the feels good man peeing did not stand out to me at all i remember like actually like photocopying a, a page out of feel out of the boys club and like putting it in my bathroom at work and then people writing like this is not funny <laughs> so even before it was associated with anything to do with uh white nationalism people were already not into it it was a very <laughs> acquired taste at the time which was like the, the 2000s but um uh, let's talk about how I remember Arthur meeting you a while ago and you telling me that this is a project you're going to work on it. This has been on your mind since obviously post election. It was like two, 2017 you started working on this? Yeah. Um, I started researching it probably the middle of 2017. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Matt and I are friends and we've been talking about working on some sort of project together for a little while, but it wasn't necessarily a documentary film. Um, and so, yeah, I'd started researching sort of the part of the story that has nothing to do with Matt in 2017. And then we started doing interviews at the end of 2017. But yeah, just to give context to it, you were talking about before, yeah, Pepe the Frog, this this crazy uh, it, you know comic that Matt had made basically for his friends. He's working at Community Thrift in San Francisco, drawing comics sort of during his downtime, made this thing called Boys Club, did four issues of Boys Club, and it was a like beloved but very niche indie comic. 
And um, then for whatever reason, this one panel from this one page of Boys Club where Pepe the Frog, which is this sort of anthropomorphic, um, sweet uh, sort of stoner frog, is just peeing and he's pulled his pants all the way down around his ankles and one of his roommates walks in and sort of busts his balls for it. And um, Pepe responds to this by basically saying like, oh, it feels good, man. It feels good to pull your pants all the way around your ankles and pee. And this ridiculous comic, for some reason, just took off. And so between like 2000, like say... 10 and 2015, it became one of the world's most popular memes. And that's sort of, yeah, the inciting incident in our movie is Matt scanning that page and putting it onto MySpace. So <laughs> normally that wouldn't be like a crazy <laughs> inciting incident, yeah. but that's, that's what we're working with here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, re- I don't remember seeing it on MySpace. So like when this became, I, I somehow missed a lot of this becoming a meme and you really trace the evolution of it from that through its kind of 4chanization. And then just, you really take the time to like w- walk people through the evolution of what happens to this meme. And, uh, I, you know, it was like, Having seen it from the outset and then just like being reintroduced to like this idea, obviously like following the comics, but then basically around the election is when things really go crazy when like Hillary's campaign calls out Pepe as uh, as a figure of hate speech. And then the Southern, is it the, the, def- the anti-defamation defamation league, league officially yeah. declares it a hate symbol, the same as like the swastika or the iron cross or, yeah. you know, any number of other things. So that, that happened in, um, right before the election, a right. couple weeks before the election. And then all of a sudden, like Matt's whole life and artistic trajectory just instantly changed. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just a weird transformation of how it goes from being just this kind of innocuous uh, um, motto of the weird internet that's fairly benign to becoming this like really twisted, weird rallying cry mm-hmm. um, for kind of a particular group of dejected youth. Um, and and I that's think you, Yeah. <laughs> I think you guys really hit on that um, to, to delve into it more. There's like two people you interview that are like 4chan people Mm -hmm. that I, you really, and I think the term is neat is what is, is sort of a self-applied, uh, term that they call themselves. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, 4chan is a really, um, complicated place. It's a huge website with a lot of different message boards and each one of these message boards is kind of its own literal cultural wormhole that people go down. And so within some of these 4chan boards, There are groups of mostly men, not all, but mostly, who have sort of dropped out of mainstream society, and they call themselves NEETs, which is uh, N-E-E-T, so not in employment, education, or training. And it's basically people that have decided to just drop out, live with a relative, and play video games all day rather than participating in normal society. And um, people who have been left out by the economy, people who don't feel like they can succeed, um, and they're often like white, frustrated dudes. Um, so we wanted to really tell this story of the internet that we felt like hadn't been sort of documented before that was an emotional story. It was a story about how um, sort of emotion travels online in these communi- in these communities, how it coalesces. And so um, that was sort of the goal. Pepe is this emotional avatar. He's the feels good frog. He's the feels bad frog. He's the sad frog. Um, he's the smug frog. And so we just kind of took these emotional valences and used them as a way to kind of organize the story. Um, there's been a lot of docs about 4chan, but it kind of just cuts to a talking head talking about it. And we really wanted to tell like a primary, 
you know, a story from a primary perspective. Yeah. And I think that does come across like I, I hadn't understood that evolution fully. And like, I think that personality type is not fully understood the neat personality or I've heard fail son as another sure. kind of equivalent <laughs> uh, and uh, analogous type. I think like we associate that with like, a you know, kind of the, the politics of the fail sons. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's like really, it's weird because it doesn't feel political actually. Yeah. It just feels like it actually, there's a few things that's also touched on that reminded me of um, as someone who listens to a lot of like, punk and metal music there's also been this sort of weird strain of right wing and white nationalist metal and punk that you kind of also have to like keep an eye out for and it's just like at a certain point it's like well they're just yelling in a language i don't know i can't i don't know what's happening but it's very obvious in in the case of pepe when people are like putting him with like you know terrible images all the time like you know it he's just been turned into what was like yeah, like a feel-good guy who sort of represents... Matt Fury is not a political cartoonist at all. He's yeah. not Gary Trudeau or whatever. He's like <laughs> definitely like... It's just like... It, it's, it's in a very specific realm of alternative comics. But there's also a whole part of alternative comics that could be, you know edge towards like libertarianism right. or like edge like there's oh, a lot of like sure. free speech issues in comics itself for sure and which is like i don't know if your comics background is is what brought you to this because i know you you're an illustrator animator arthur yeah i mean and i've always been a fan of underground comics like i kind of have like an encyclopedic appreciation for that stuff and certainly yeah we were talking about the sort of like libertarian sort of era of underground comics like the mike diana's exactly and sort of yeah, people free speech who issues, actually went yeah. to jail for this Mm -hmm. during the Tipper Gore era. Um, yeah. And I mean, there is kind of a subtextual story to this movie where you sort of seen transgressive art move from the left to the right. Right. Um, I, and I've, I've talked about that a lot too. Like same with conspiracy theories mm -hmm. in the nineties, conspiracy mm -hmm. theories were left wing yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. like they've all switched over. Now, if you say conspiracy theorists, I'm like, well, there's a time like everyone I knew was a conspiracy theorist about something. Uh -huh. And then now it's like, you know, even they, Alex Jones, like, I mean, Alex Jones appeared in Richard Linkletter films and yeah. now he's in this film completely Which, on a different other side, well, the on the other side of the uh, cultural divide. I feel like the Epstein story is bringing everyone together. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> great, it's a great unifier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, it's like a bewildering time, but I think what's unique about the story and what's unique about Matt's experience is that we kind of tell the story through Matt's eyes because it's also bewildering to Matt himself and yeah. probably the most bewildering to him <laughs> uh, specifically. And so... Um, he's kind of this incredible vehicle through which you can kind of start to understand what the hell happened in the last few years and, and start to make sense of things that like for a lot of people in the country don't really connect. Like mm -hmm. why are all these basement dwelling dudes so pro Trump? Like Trump is a, Trump is a bully. Mm -hmm. Like he bullies people like these other people. Like why, where is the association? And like, so even though it's an artist's journey, like it's through Matt's story that we kind of start to understand what's happening in the rest of the country. Yeah. I feel like what you guys hit on and I feel like it's been sort of addressed in some places is it's a sort of, it's the nihilism, right? Or the nihilism, whatever. Like it's like the, the negation part of it that people identify with. It's not that they're pro Trump. They're just right. anti everything. Yeah. And he sort of represents that to some extent, or it feels like that's what gets people emotionally into the, this, this space, at least in the, when some of the people we talk about in the film. For sure. I think the, I mean, 
emotion is it for sure. I think when people respond to Trump because he's sort of, uh, he appeals to them emotionally, they hear what he's saying and they like it. They don't necessarily understand maybe why they like it at first. Uh, they go back and intellectualize it afterwards. That's why you see all of these, you know, people like the Jordan Petersons or people on YouTube, all the YouTube dads coming back and helping people intellectualize their emotional reactions to all of this stuff. Um, but I mean, in the same way that culturally we were kind of caught sleeping by this movement, you know, Matt was culturally caught sleeping too a little bit because, you know, he had a very like live and let live attitude towards Pepe being a meme. He really had like this Jerry Garcia kind of feeling about it. You know, people are people who are fans of the music would, you know, record the music, trade tapes in the parking lot. And he just kind of had that very similar feeling about Pepe as long as it was used as this like relatively funny and innocuous meme. He felt like he couldn't control it. And even like there's a, there's an interview that Matt gave that, uh, we didn't end up using in the edit, but I think it really speaks to him where he just says like, he doesn't want to stop people from doing anything. He just wants to stop dumb shit from happening. And I think that really is kind of why he ultimately felt like he had to enforce his copyright because it got to the point where he had to do something. It was too out of control. I have a friend who is a intellectual property lawyer and I really wanted him to see this film. And he's like, what? I I can't see it yet. I'm like, yeah, I know. I really need you to see this film. I really want to hear what you have to say. Because the one critique I've heard, and like, I'm not personally friends with Matt. I think we kind of travel in similar circles and like we overlap with a lot of people. And so I was always sympathetic to the situation with Pepe and I always sort of understood that this was not the purpose of it. Um, a few people I've talked to that, uh, you know, have seen the film there, there is, and I think some of the reviews I read sort of are, are very critical of Matt and his kind of like laissez faire attitude about what happened. I don't know if you've felt a lot of that, uh, feedback. I felt a lot of that feedback and I think it's, honestly partially unfair this is something that's never happened to anyone before (laughs) like what would you do it's easy for someone to sort of sit back and think about all the different ways they would have possibly Mm -hmm. like handled the situation but the reality is like there's never been a meme that's been turned into a hate symbol before Mm -hmm. and um matt tried to approach this in a very straightforward manner initially he thought he was going to like ignore it and it was going to go away and then he sort of realized well i'm going to try to attack this through art i'm going to try to have my indie comics community come together and make positive Pepe's. So he did this Mm -hmm. thing called the hashtag hashtag save Pepe movement, which I think um, some people wrote off as naive, but it's genuine to who Matt is and it's genuine to his community. Mm -hmm. And it was something he felt like he could do. And also Matt doesn't like lawyers. Like no one likes (laughs) lawyers. It's not fun to like lawyer up. Mm -hmm. And also he's an independent artist. Like if you don't have you know, Disney money or Nickelodeon money or something like that. Fantagraphics pre- money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. That deep fantagraphics yeah, yeah, yeah. legal fund. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. comics nerds, yeah. Totally. Um, so yeah, I shit d- out of luck. Yeah, totally. So he had to find like pro bono lawyers to collaborate with him. Mm-hmm. And um, so... It is funny, though. I hope your friend does see this movie because we showed this at Sundance and Matt's copyright attorneys were in the audience. And it's kind of the biggest turn in the story. Like they get like a, an ovation. <laughs> like they were they were thrilled. By the whole thing. Who uh, else was from the film that came to the screenings at Sundance? Oh, we had a great. Oh, by the way, congratulations on being at Thank Sundance. You. I know it's a Thank very you. competitive thing to get into. Yeah. Um, how, how was the process? Let's talk about that experience of getting into Sundance. Uh, I think that's like. 
probably like a pretty crowning achievement for you guys for first time filmmaker. Yeah, dude, it's, yeah. it's fucking wild, man. It's, uh, it, yeah. I mean that what we've been saying is like, it's like you have to, you get in and then you have to finish the film. Mm. And if you're someone that is like still scrapping together funding and all this sort of yeah. stuff, that's like kind of an amazing experience to be like, all right, we have to finish the movie. We have to then like throw a wedding for the movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it really is. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I got crazy. married like a year like, ago. It's the same kind of idea. Yeah. yeah you have to like hire publicists, all this sort of stuff. So you, you hire publicists for your wedding. Well, no, not that part, but you know, you're just like coalescing because all of a sudden all of these other interests come and descend yeah. upon you and you're trying to like finish the movie but at the same time you're having to like someone on your team's like we have to plan a party and you're like oh okay and so we got to figure that out and then it's like oh and then we got to bring on the publicist and we got to do this and that and you got to be here at this place and you're just like it feels like you're trying to be in the i guess that's the relatable part is that you're trying to have this very special day and be in the moment but like there's just such a crazy energy around you the whole time that it's kind of hard to to like be present and be like this is unfucking believable mm -hmm. where we've come like two years ago we were like climbing a rock in southern england it's just like we've come a long way so yeah. it was to, to, yeah just so that that makes sense <laughs> oh, yeah, that's <laughs> so we went back like part of the story is like the history of memes oh, right you know what yeah. i mean so so in the night in you know, uh, Richard Dawkins, the internet's uh, most controversial atheist, wrote a book called The Selfish Gene in the mid-1970s, and that basically created this whole sort of academic subgenre of universal Darwinism called memetics. And so we went to England and we interviewed this amazing woman named Susan Blackmore, who's written a book called The Meme Machine, and basically become the sort of like foremost authority in memetics. And so while we were there, we took a little break and we climbed a rock together, <laughs> never thinking that we would end up at Sundance two years later. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say Sundance was, I mean, it was a great, I mean, it was very nerve wracking for me because I was very nervous about like Matt and Ayana's sort of feelings about the film. Um, but we really just had kind of this amazing coming together moment where all of these people who worked on the film loved Matt's work. And then also the subjects of the film who are, you know, Matt and his family, his friends um, all came together and we raged hard. It was fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so the, when you submitted, uh, you, what was, you had a, sh a different cut that you submitted initially? Is that We what, had a cut like that a was a little bit longer uh -huh. and there was like a couple sections in that cut that we ended up trimming for time we really wanted this film to be like just a 90 minute film that felt like a narrative uh movie you know there's like there's death in this film there's conflict in this film you know we want yeah there's villains um yeah, there's, you know, we have like a shootout OK Corral kind of moment between Matt oh. and, uh, you know, some people that he's, you know, suing. So <laughs> it's uh, it, it's it's a weird film that we really wanted to play to an audience and have it feel unlike most documentaries. There's also like it's stylistically, you know, all over the place. There's moments where we take Matt's comics and bring them to life, you know, using beautiful animation. There's a lot of motion graphics where we really try to make um, um, message boards like 4chan and Reddit really come alive so you can really feel like the roaches running up the, you know, running up the wires <laughs> on the back of the computer. So, um, which is a big challenge because those websites are infamously ugly as hell. That is yeah. true. Like, that's the thing. People always say like, oh, what was it like to spend on 4chan? It's like, well, it's relatively boring because when you go to it at the beginning, it just, it's just a, a tan background yeah. with tan boxes, <laughs> green, red text. Yeah. Like, Only Craigslist is uglier. Yeah. Really. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, when is Craigslist going to do a site design? <laughs> 
<laughs> let's take exactly. this conversation in a different yeah. in um, direction. So uh, let's take a quick break, but when we come back, I will ask you about how you decided you were going to start making a documentary in the first place. Cool. With Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini. Videotape deposition of Matt Fury in the matter of Matt Fury versus Infowars and Free Speech LLC. So from 2001 to 2007, you had sort of this carefree, part-time, knucklehead life. I still have that. <laughs> Excellent. And what did you do to prepare for today's deposition? Really nothing. So how did you pick the name Pepe the Frog? It sounded like um, pee-pee. To go pee-pee. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Again, the filmmakers of Feels Good Man, Giorgio Angelini, Arthur Jones, here at the, I was going to say Cat Ranch. I can't steal another podcast. <laughs> I think that is, I think yeah. it's all been copyrighted. Um, uh, please support our Patreon. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Arthur, this is your first time making a film. You guys work together on Owned where Arthur, you did the animation mm-hmm. and illustrations for that. Um, well, there's motion graphics too. Yeah, I mean, Giorgio, when he was making that film, really wanted to kind of, uh, you know, there's there's been a number of documentaries about housing policy in America and redlining and this sort of stuff, but he really wanted to make this sort of stylistically distinct film about that. And so, we had a lot of conversations while, you know, before he edited the film about what that could look like. And then, yeah, I I did these sort of animated vignettes in the movie, bringing some of the funnier moments of the, (laughs) of the story, um, of the interviews he had, uh, to life. You you guys both like both films have like interesting character studies in them, like could have embedded in them. Yeah. And we, we both sought to make, um, both like both the films we hoped would really have this sort of, um, uh, stylistically, uh, kind of, uh, zany way of talking about really serious subjects that are really important. And so we kind of went into the film with, in both films, I think to like having like a a real sense of like ambition because we think there's stories that need to be told and they're underheard because people don't tell them in a way that is probably exciting enough. So, (laughs) so yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot. Like there's, I think, I think they're, both stories about infrastructures and how these infrastructures and systems like separate us and, uh, and sort of the commoditization of these infrastructures, except one is a physical form like home building and city building. The other is like 
internet infrastructure, but they kind of weirdly run similar paths in how they silo certain people and kind of tease out the worst aspects of us as a society. So it was kind of really interesting coming out of Sundance to kind of look back and be like, oh, there's a nice common thread through what we're creating here. Yeah, they're both kind of stories about how systems uh, reinforce isolation and how that can tear people apart and uh, make it really hard for us to sort of communicate with each other as a society. Mm -hmm. That's really good. um, I just got goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) So in Georgia, when you, how did you guys end up working together initially? Through a mutual filmmaker friends uh, at Lost and Found Films, uh, Ben Wu and and David Usui, uh, I was sharing office space with them in New York. And I was also, a, I was a young architect wanting to get into film. And I had this idea for a film. Oh, that's and, so interesting that that you made a film about the housing crisis yeah, of architecture. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. There was a little bit of like interesting, when you talk about the socialist architecture of Mar Vista, I was like, what? I didn't know anything about this. <laughs> yeah. This looks like Palo Alto to me, so I'm confused. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's your background. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so like, but I had no idea what I was doing. And I was like constantly berating them for information and they were finally like just go start filming and then they introduced me to arthur it was way too early to start talking about animations and stuff but arthur to his credit was very patient with me early on (laughs) until like and he was really interested in the story too it turned out and like uh yeah he was super helpful in like kind of forming the ideas and then finally five years later when i'd done finished filming and he could actually do the animation work you know it was a nice marriage of of uh artistic stylings. And, and it's great. Ben and David you know, worked on this film too. So David yeah. uh, shot a lot of our stuff that we you know, shot on the East Coast and then Ben shot in Texas for us a little bit. So um, yeah, it feels kind of a nice full circle kind of thing. Yeah. And Arthur, uh, so as a sort of you had, uh, we were saying earlier, you have, oh, off mic, you were saying how you have all these different skills that were sort of like, leading to a little bit of a career crisis. And uh, I don't know if that's something you want to talk about. Sure, I can talk about it a little bit. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I I was, you know, I've, my background is I went to school for painting. I, uh, after that, I worked in web design, graphic design. I I taught myself sort of how to animate on the computer. Um, And I have basically worked as a freelancer for 15 years without a whole lot of like, uh, super specific ambition behind that. Um, but I'd sort of acquired all of this, what felt to me like very disparate kind of talents. And I was sort of going out doing different job interviews for like art direction and creative direction jobs and advertising and not really finding like, uh, not really feeling like I was finding the, the right job for me or the right situation. And then all of a sudden this crazy documentary story fell into my lap and I was working on docs like Giorgio's film. And then also my friend Amy's film, she made this film called Hal about Hal Ashby. And then, um, sort of the the third person in our creative partnership is this guy, Aaron Wickenden, who edited Feels Good Man. He was one of three editors on the, and he also helped us produce it. And Aaron is someone who has edited a bunch of feature docs that probably your listeners have heard of, like Finding Vivian Mayer, um, the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Um, He's worked with Steve James, Morgan Neville. And so he really, uh, he really kind of came in and encouraged me to, do this project and felt like I could uh, tell the story rather than seeking out another filmmaker and maybe me just doing the animation on it. Um, 
Because you had a connection with Matt? Is that part of the thinking? Well, I had a connection with Matt. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Matt had been approached by a number of, you know, places like Vice or, you know, about maybe doing a story about Pepe. He had a number of other people coming in. And in those those, uh, conversations... You know, other people would also come in and talk to him about maybe like doing a Pepe cartoon, but it was going to all be about revenge. And that's just not a feeling that Matt has in his body. That's not what he's about. He's a he's a pacifist. Mm -hmm. And so I think he wanted to tell the story with friends he trusted. And then Aaron and I are just like old pals from living in Chicago together in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so um, Aaron is just kind of like, uh, yeah, this this amazing uh, talent who is just like really good at taking these big stories and kind of boiling them down to their essence and coming up with like these great emotional moments within them. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how the collaboration started to happen. And also like, I was just singularly obsessed with the story, maybe similar to you, like you would observe it as a fan of boys club. Like when I would observe Pepe popping up in these places, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? Mm -hmm. This feels like a very like strange cultural story that maybe I understand in a way that not everyone else does because I have this attachment to comics. And then also like I grew up in a super conservative household. My dad is like a Rush Limbaugh, you know, listener. Uh, we, I grew up in the fog of conservative AM radio and Fox news and all this stuff. So I felt like I kind of understood what it was like to come out of that, to like unread pill myself and find like (laughs) this other like world, uh, you know, waiting for me once I had sort of left this like toxic dialogue that was happening. Um, And so, uh, yeah, I just, I, uh, yeah, I just knew I had to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, having people like Giorgio and Aaron to come along and just help me do it was just uh, amazing. Like I've, the other thing about Sundance is it's just, it's gratitude. Like it's crazy how, many things lined up with this story and how many great people worked on it. It's, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty special moment. Yeah. And, and so as a, this is a production where you had to, were you doing this between doing paid work essentially, or kind of like to keep this going for the last few years? Yeah. Yes. I we, mean, we this both, is not an obvious yeah. question, but I, you know, yeah. like, I, I know how many of our our listeners are actually filmmakers themselves, but I know it's like a, it's a it's a it's a different system than yeah. like pitching a fiction film type situation, especially yeah. if you're new to it. Like, yeah. you know, no one wants to give you money until you've already made the money for sure. <laughs> um, that's just the reality of the business. Yeah, the first year in particular, like, yeah, no, I I worked really hard. I know we both did on a lot of different projects and, um, the, maybe the last nine months or a year, we were pretty much able to work on the film full time, which was an amazing thing. Um, we found great partners at wavelength productions and the Chicago media project to come in and help us. But yeah, the first year and a half, we were just bootstrapping it ourselves. Or they're great. I think, uh, with some types of documentaries there's maybe grants you can mm. apply for is, we applied for all of them we probably get it. they're just yeah. gonna be like do you yeah. want to talk about the nazi frog yeah. no way yeah. uh, that <laughs> i think was uh, i i think yeah you boiled down basically <laughs> the, the the problem people had with the film uh initially when they heard about it right yeah because um, that's the thing is like in your head you're a filmmaker and you're like you know what it's gonna feel like the, the final product but it's so hard to render that in other people's minds and like mm-hmm. in a substantive way until you actually finish the film. So we were kind of up against the fact that we didn't really have much of a track record to, sh- to prove that like, just trust us with this really potentially toxic film. And then what's been so rewarding is that 
now that we've kind of started to screen it publicly and the people have started to respond, it's like, oh, I had no idea about Matt's life. And this is such a surprisingly heartwarming story. And it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know, that that's part of the gratitude conversation. Just grateful that like people are, are finally getting it and that hopefully in the future granting yeah. bodies will be. <laughs> I don't know. This is, yeah, yeah, we had to make a switch where like we could we could write a bunch of grants or make a film. Yeah. We're going to choose to make a film. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Who's, who the grants are. But we did end up getting, once we finished the film, some really kind donors did come in at the very end. Yeah. Um, and that's just the way it is. And I totally understand. It's like there's a lot of risk there. Um, mm-hmm. So... Yeah, and it is a, it, it's a film that really is incredibly complicated. Yeah. I hope that we threaded the needle on it. I think we threaded the needle yeah. on it. Um, but yeah, it deals with all of these zigzagging sort of like narratives, and it also has all of this kind of like wild stylistic stuff. So getting people to to trust us early wasn't going to happen. But once we had like a forty five minute cut that mm-hmm. we felt really good about, um, it was a lot easier to find like collaborators yeah. um, and production companies to help us who also believed in the vision of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it is like, uh, it is such a fascinating story and uh, the, the seeing Matt as this sort of family guy and, uh, I should say family man, not family guy, uh, in terms of animation. Uh, also I love, there's one quote of his, I love, which I don't know. I don't know what I can talk about no, without go giving ahead. away too much. Go ahead. Where, uh, he's in the deposition. They're like, you have this like, lazy layabout lifestyle. He's like, no, I still have that. Well, I actually find that moment to be really inspiring. I yeah. love that moment because basically just for a little backstory, it's, you know, Matt is getting grilled in a deposition by Alex Jones's attorney who very much sounds like Alex Jones. He's sort of, <laughs> he's a very similar personality. He's pills. Have some protein powder. He's an aggressive <laughs> yeah. dude with a lot of bluster. And so, yeah, he says Matt, like, you know, has like, uh, he, he says he has this, he accuses him having this knucklehead life and Matt's just like, yeah, I still have a knucklehead life. And I actually think it's like important for people, like Matt has never compromised himself during Mm -hmm. any of this, like even in this deposition that went on for hours Mm -hmm. and he's being grilled by like a guy in a suit and it's very much like Matt is out of his depth. You know, in the film you see Matt getting a haircut and putting on a suit, two things that are (laughs) not what he would maybe normally do Mm -hmm. and he wouldn't have to do because he's an artist. Um, but in the in the footage, he is always himself. He keeps his sense of humor. He keeps his composure. Um, and I think that uh, it allows us to tell this farcical story as it really is, mm-hmm. as a farce, mm-hmm. um, especially those moments. But yeah, I love how he just keeps his sunny, weird disposition throughout this whole thing in a way that I hope that if you're a young person watching this, because I do think this film is going to be watched by a lot of people who are like 18, 20, you see that and you realize you can kind of live an uncompromised life, you know, as you grow up and continue to be passionate about the things you're passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one thing I was thinking about before we started working on recording this, and I think this must have been a concern as yours as well, is like, there must be like some concern about dark corners of the internet, like kind of coming after you guys once this is more available, once they've actually seen it or, or just people that feel still feel like they own Pepe, you know, or like Pepe is being used. Like they, they want to use it for their own, like like when I think of the 4chan community or whatever, which I mean, I obviously it's not just one community. There's like many sub sections of that. And it was just like, uh, 
uh, is this, are we going to get like in trouble with someone for doing this? I mean, we've already talked about Scientology, yeah, so yeah. we've already yeah. run across that. I think hurdle. those guys are much more organized. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I can see David Miscavige looking, lurking in the bushes. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, trolling is, you know, trolls are seeking to sort of um, um, like, emotionally terrorize you into complacency. And we decided that wasn't really something that we were going to be too worried about with this film. Um, you know, I think, uh, also the dark cores of the internet are maybe as dark as you would think. These are people who are, um, frustrated and desperate for a variety of reasons. And so, um, we wanted to tell that story in a way that wasn't really like leaning into the fearful aspects of it. Um, and also this is Matt's story. It's not their story. Yeah. You know, Matt drew Pepe. He created Pepe. This is his story and his relationship to the character. So, um, yeah, I mean, we were way more concerned with making a bad film than maybe getting <laughs> yeah. trolled. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the film, it's a film told through the perspective of Matt, but it's about how, you know, the the forces of the internet have sort of stripped us of our capacity for empathy and compassion and shame us out of these feelings. And Matt has this incredible... Um, avatar through which you can like fight back and say like, I'm not going to be shamed out of being an authentic person. And like, that's kind of the nature of trolling. And it's like anyone who puts anything out on the internet, regardless of it's this movie or just an honest opinion about a politician or about something they like is going to receive some kind of trolling. And it's just like, you know, it's like oxygen, unfortunately, <laughs> really fart filled oxygen. <laughs> but it's just well, like, it's part of life. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, hopefully, you know, in the grander scheme of things, you know, you watch this movie and you realize like you don't have to fucking like subscribe to that way of thinking. And it's like you don't have to feel bullied and bullied out of your your capacity for empathy and, and a real authentic emotion. Yeah, I mean, I think that's well put. I think, um, you know, the easiest thing in the world is to hop on YouTube or 4chan and write just like a shitty comment. Like, that's so fucking easy. And we spent two and a half years crafting a thing that we really fucking cared about. You know, every single second of this movie was um, painstakingly sort of thought about and edited and in a lot of cases, you know, animated, you know, frame by frame. And that's just a totally different thing than just yeah. like getting on and writing some shitty cynical <laughs> shit comment. Like, I think damn it. That's the thing that Matt <laughs> always comes back to, which is really funny. I don't think it's ever in the film, but I think off camera, he's always said like, the thing that pisses me off the most almost is just how lazy the artwork is. <laughs> right. You know, and I think there's something the really memes. The talking memes. about yeah, the memes specifically. Yeah. yeah. yeah like yeah, he yeah. gets the most mad, not when people like cop, like there's a, there's a really popular, uh, LA Laker Twitter fan page and it's got a, a features of Pepe guy. Like again, to also to reinforce the fact that like Pepe, it means a lot of things to a lot of different people for this particular Lakers fan. Like it's just about always losing. And so Pepe is the avatar for always losing, but he like, prints all these Pepe shirts that I showed it to Matt. And he's like, yeah, the thing that pissed me off the most is these are really ugly shirts, Yeah, you know? So yeah. like, there's just something about just kind of the, the, I don't know, lack of ambition. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that does lead to a larger point. Like Matt does not care if you make Pepe memes. Like if you were a kid and you like sad frog and you want to post that on your like Twitch or steam or mm -hmm. whatever, he does, does not care. It's really using it as a symbol for hate or propaganda or people who are making a bunch of like, um, environmentally impactful garbage. Yeah. He doesn't like it. Yeah. The, the only other character I think, well, maybe this is 
a little bit of an older character, but I remember, do you remember the initial wave of all the bootleg Bart Simpson merch? No, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like that's probably yeah. the only yeah. other thing I can think of in my, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, there's, I'm sure there's more. I but think like, the Bill Waterson, Calvin Peeing thing. Calvin, Calvin Peeing. Probably. Yeah. Which, where's a documentary on that? that? <laughs> I want so badly to make that. Yeah, I almost wore the shirt that I made. I made my own bootleg Calvin Peeing in the Duchamp urinal t-shirt. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And I sold like five of them. I also uh, like your bootleg Bart. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's uh, a good one. But, uh, made a bootleg Matt Bart Groening's listening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all we can good hi- hire us to make that doc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's... uh. It's it's true. I mean, it's there's Matt. There's a scene where Matt um, goes to the ADL to talk to the director of the ADL, the Anti Defamation League, about potentially getting his work off the internet. And I think he keeps off the hate symbols off the hate symbols database. Mm-hmm. Um, that he keeps coming back to this thing, which I think is really powerful. It's like there's it's the only character on the database, right? Uh, it's only copywritten like character or something. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's, it's the only copywritten oh, character. Right. So it's like, if you're an independent artist, how do you protect that IP? Yeah. And it's also like, you know, it's, they're not recognizing that Pepe is necessarily his, that it yeah. was something that he created. And there was an imaginated universe behind Pepe before any of this stuff happened. Yeah. The, the, yeah, that's the thing. I don't expect the Defamation League to like be like big comics fans or anything. So it's like, yeah, what is their and their take is just like this is bigger than you. Exactly. Yeah. Which is kind of I think proven. It's it's, it's understandable, but I think it is true that in some ways Matt was sort of treated like a political footballer. They didn't they didn't call him to warn him. Hey, that's this thing true. that's your. Mm-hmm defining character we're about to like destroy your life yeah Yeah. i mean like that to me just shows a level of disrespect to and just disinterest in how these decisions impact this individual and um it was a powerful scene filming for that reason because um yeah i don't know what it portends in the future of like how co-opting can work because there's no shortage of like spongebob with nazi paraphernalia put on him but it's like again it's that matt is this individual and i think in some sense we wanted to make a film that kind of canonizes the boys club and pepe so that we can really say like this is boys club canon and like this is who (laughs) the character is and there's no confusion about it it's a retcon it's a nazi (laughs) retcon so i I want going back to that i want kind of like think about in a way what my reaction was when the the clinton campaign put out their statement about pepe uh, being a, a hate speech figure, and just in my my first thought it was just like this is just gonna backfire, mm. right? This is just adding fuel to the fire of this interpretation of Pepe, but also sort of seemed to me to indicate like a sort of tone deafness in the Clinton campaign about online culture. I don't know if you sort of mm-hmm. felt that way yourself. Uh, absolutely, one hundred and ten percent. I think the um and to um expand on that. Yeah. Richard Spencer didn't really start using Pepe and Ernest as his personal logo. Like he was using Pepe for his, you know, podcast as like basically the icon for his podcast. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Matt got him to stop. Okay. But, um, but you know, it, it really gave people the ability to use it specifically as propaganda. Mm. Right. Um, like, and like also the ability yeah. to like obfuscate their true intentions by using it. Um, that said, I mean, the ADL's database 
is mostly um, uh, uh, supposed to be a resource for parents. Um, so if you go and see like something that maybe your teenager is using, then you might see that and be like, oh, the kid's using like this this, you know, iron cross, or they're using like the specific symbol that a neo-Nazi might use. Um, and so that was, that, that's what they would say was their intention. And I hear that for sure, but it does give, uh, I mean, it, it allows people to use Pepe in a more, um, devious way if you give it this baggage. Well, I think it was speaking of like that being like a parental guide. It does in my mind, bring me back to what I was saying earlier about early metal and punk. When you think <laughs> about like how that was treated in the eighties and like basically the, the fear around it kind of gave it more mm. mystique and power, I think. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely parallels for sure. I mean, we, I mean, like you mentioned it earlier in the conversation, like about how the punk movement sort of, over they, time, they got had co-opted. swastikas. Yeah, in the punk movement. exactly. Unfortunately, I, yeah. that is something that I've. You oh know, yeah, a lot Joy Division. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like any counterculture movement that's trying to push back against the establishment, in some sense, is going to have a very uh, nuanced coalition of of ideas behind it. But like at the end of the day, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think one has to lead to the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Just some something about when that actually occurred, and then the it went with the deplorables basket sort of commentary, yeah. and how that just all kind of oh, you just gave them the thing to react against. Yeah. You gave them more oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. The and there's like there's that there's that meme that came out afterwards that's like taken from the Simpsons just to bring this all back into the same cultural <laughs> stew that we're all swimming in. Yeah. There's that, you know, it's like, uh, they use that Simpsons oh, sort of iconic. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like it, the yelling at clouds thing, <laughs> but then they have Hillary Clinton like yelling at a meme and yeah. that was super, you know, but this kind of goes back to what we were saying initially when we were talking about it, the way Matt handled this is mm-hmm. like, this has never happened before. Right. You know, all of a sudden we as a culture are trying to figure out basically how to deal with this new form of communication. You know, every single person who has a cell phone now has a printing press in their pocket. They have mm-hmm. the ability to all of a sudden like basically make memes, make political content. Um, this is something that all of society is trying to like deal with and understand how to like parse and understand. And all these different sides are also trying to figure out ways to exploit this, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the ADL is in that same sort of gray area where it's like, well, what the fuck do we do now? Um, and yeah, you know, it's like, we see it this week, like Michael Bloomberg, all of a sudden is like hiring meme makers. He's oh hiring, he's hiring, he is hiring fuck Jerry. So basically yeah. he can jump the, the primary worst. and caucus process. Oh my God. So, I mean, this is a thing that obviously if people like Michael Bloomberg are taking seriously, they're taking memes in Mm -hmm. the 2020 election. Like this is going to continue to be a dialogue that we all need to have. And we hope that this movie is like kind of at the forefront Uh, of that uh, conversation. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's on what's really twisted is on one side you have uh, Bloomberg like paying through the nose for all these things. But then Trump just like stealing from memes from all these like, total bootlickers who are just more than happy to just make this propaganda crap for them in the hopes that he retweets them. And it's like, what, what kind of hollow, empty life to lead? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's the attention economy. The attention I mean, guy, it's yeah. the attention economy. Yeah. And it also allows Trump to build coalition through these people that are making these memes right. for him. They feel as if they're a part of the campaign if they're making these he, memes. So he, I, you know, he, he has an innate understanding of it. I don't know if he necessarily has like... It's a Scavino uh, dude, I think, who's really running it. 
But they, yeah. they inv- yeah. he invited all these meme lords to the White House, like I think Mar a Lago. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. like last uh, October or something to have like a, a meme convention to celebrate. You know, and I think <laughs> the semi direct quote from Trump was like, I can't believe the shit you guys are creating, but it's wonderful. You know, and it's like, that's kind of at the core of what this film is trying to explain to people is that like the shit that these people are creating is actually incredibly powerful and we need to understand it more mm-hmm. fundamentally and take it seriously. We just kind of was like, oh yeah, man, just let them do what they want. Using Peppy as a meme, that's cool, you know. Meme. I didn't even know what a meme was, or I don't even still know if I'm saying that correctly, but it was through Pepe that I learned what a meme was. What's what's an example of a positive meme you can think of, like uh, other than like cat and dog videos? I think those are like the only positive. I thought memes Dat Boy was a great meme. Dat Boy, another frog, funny. another yeah. frog. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm all about Dat Boy. <laughs> uh, he's very funny to me. What's what's some other favorites? I I mean Trump has used it, but I find the Nickelback photograph meme to be very funny. Yeah. <laughs> that, that one always kills me for some dumb reason. I don't know. I like memes that sort of are. Cross-cultural unifiers. I'm trying to think of uh, a particularly good one at the moment. It's escaping me because they just almost invariably end up getting used used up so fast. But do you guys remember when people just resubtitled that yeah. Hitler movie? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's like the yeah, inverse of what exactly. happened here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People just use like like a footage of an actor playing Hitler yeah. to be like, uh, I don't like vaporwave or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that movie had a really hard time having to, having to deal with that kind of weird popularity. Maybe that's the ad campaign is you have Hitler talking about how Pepe was actually invented by Matt Ferry. Oh, actually, that's, well, that's funny. He just like looped it all. Well, I saw around. Jojo Rabbit. There was a pretty amazing oh my Jojo, God, Rabbit Jojo Rabbit version of that. Oh, Hitler video. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty funny. There's, there's different camps of memes for me. I think like the ones... Maybe the not good ones are the ones where it gets dangerous is like where I see the dangerous potential is just that like what's powerful and potent about a meme is that it ingrains inside of it this emotional depth that happens kind of instantaneously from just the visual. Like when you're when you become inundated by a particular meme, you kind of start associating these particular emotions with it. And so Mm -hmm. then it becomes like for people on the outside, very hard to understand what that means to other people, but then it becomes like a very powerful trigger for those in groups that are using the meme. And so I think that's part of like what's dangerous about it is because it, it's a new form of propaganda that has embedded within it all of this cultural information that is really difficult to parse, but has like this really potent ability to motivate people sometimes for not good reasons. And that's why none of us should have got our grandparents on Facebook. Exactly. (laughs) Well, there's two. It's all our own fault. We're getting our grandparents on Facebook. We fucked up the democracy. You kind of pair in the film, like you referenced, the other meme that is also sort of a popular fortune. There's that that cartoon face guy. Yeah. I forgot the name. Wojak. Wojak. Yeah. And then there's also just like the other smirking cartoon face. It's, that's not the there's, same person. There's troll face. Very, um, okay, those are the two variations. I mean, they all overlap. There's Pepe yeah. versions of troll mm-hmm. face. There's Wojak versions of troll face. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, 4chan started out as basically this like community of joke writers. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know, it was joke writers. So did with Twitter. <laughs> totally. Um, and then, yeah, it just started to get meaner and meaner and meaner. Um, yeah, there, there, like Georgia was saying, there's a lot of um, in group memes, you know. Uh, SpongeBob is used all the time in all sorts of like fucked up ways. Well, it's generational well. too. It's got to be some it's of the generational. I think anime has re- is like well, you want to talk to young sure. people, they like um, what, not fifty, <laughs> um, but well, close. But like, yeah, like I just I'm surprised at how cross cultural yeah. but generational specific like anime has become for people as well. So like a ton of anime. Well, that's that's how Four Chan started. It yeah. was basically a place for people to go and talk about. Japanese culture and anime and 4chan was based on a Japanese message board called 2chan. Um, and even to a certain degree, this notion of neets, the mm-hmm. not an employment education training, that idea has existed culturally in Japan for many years. So there is yeah. this, ver- there is a version of this same thing that's happening in all of these, um, very fan centric sort of like video game obsessed places where people are choosing to sort of pass out of their reality and go through the screen a little bit. So we do see this, um, similarities between, um, what's going on in America Mm -hmm. and in Japan. It's a place where, um, you know, it's a very ambitious culture. Um, it's a shame-based culture where a lot of people feel like they maybe can't compete. Um, Mm -hmm. so that they, rather than competing, they choose to drop out. And so, um, even that sort of like nihilism came along with that message board. Okay. So um, that was something that people were aware of on 4chan before this culturally happening in Japan. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was a mix of all of this fan culture. And you know, 4chan started a long time ago. It was before you could see anime on YouTube. It was before you could go to anime shops, before you could buy it online. So it was really just like a, an obsessed fan culture yeah. initially. Yeah, and in, in that context, I think the reason Pepe takes off is like, I think it's important to contextualize all of this to understand that someone in our film is our resident occultist. Ref- oh yeah, that refer- guy's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, refers to Pepe. he refers to Pepe as an omen, and I think if he takes yeah. seriously... What's that guy's name? So his name is John Michael Greer, okay. and um, he, uh, shout him out, you should Google <laughs> when you, him. Yeah, he's, when you introduce him, it's yeah. like, I'm like, okay, we are just entered another <laughs> realm of this film. No, he's, he's, a, he's a lean-in moment, as yeah. they would say. <laughs> uh, no, he's amazing. You, whoever's listening should look him up, John Michael Greer. He's written up over 40 books on magic, and he really is someone who thinks about the zeitgeist in a slightly different lens yeah. and it really I think helps people kind of like open up their mind to this world of um, you know memes but also semiotics and the way ideas move throughout the mass mm-hmm. mind in a creative um, kind of hard to understand way yeah. and he's also he's just a fascinating yeah. person yeah. to listen to but he calls he, 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 he calls Pepe an omen and I think if you take him seriously what you start to understand in the context of what Arthur was just describing is that like for much of youth around the world, Mm -hmm. Pepe is very relevant. And I think it's because he operates on this emotional valence that, that people who feel like, um, in this particular era of sort of gilded era that we live in, that that it's hard to figure out where you, you fit in. And on a very base level without any of the political stuff, like Pepe really just becomes this avatar for, uh, a kind of existential crisis. And so the film definitely explores 
that in fuller uh, ways that, yeah. that, that departs more clearly from like just the kind of more toxic ways that it was adopted in the U.S. Right. I think I think this, if anything, the version like the version I saw, like there is there's sort of a light at the end of the tunnel, it seems like. And, and there's some some bit of optimism at the end uh, yeah. regarding Pepe's future. And uh, I, I think like going back to like when you think about like why people can project so much onto this very simple drawing. It's because it's simple, right? It's because it's like we can just kind of project things onto characters more than we can onto yeah. like more, you know, detailed types of drawings or, you know, photos or anything. It's just like you can just put yourself into right. the Pepe mind. I guess. Yeah. And I do think like kind of what you were saying about like the cultural baggage from the previous generation now kind of being fodder for memes. I, I do think Pepe has like kind of an aesthetic quality that people really respond to that it feels like the Muppets. It feels like something mm -hmm. from your childhood, but it's kind of indistinct um, so that, you know, people that are unaware of Boys Club don't realize kind of where it came from. Yeah. And um, so, but there is something about it that does feel like the never ending story. It feels like the Muppets, like it has this sort of familiarity, even if you didn't know right. its context mm -hmm. at all. And I think that's one of the reasons why it yeah. took off in these places that are so obsessed with pop culture for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a testament to Matt's uh, drawing capabilities that like, despite not having a multi-billion dollar corporation behind it pushing the brand or this, the backstory of who Pepe was, it was literally just the aesthetics of the image that yeah. people resonated with. Um, and and it's true. Like most people who are not artists or not cartoonists don't realize how actually hard it is yeah. to draw a good cartoon. Yeah. It's not something you think about. Yeah. Like you think about Betty Boop as like just kind of being this dumb drawing, but actually Betty Boop is an amazing, people no longer watch Betty Boop cartoons, but they still wear Betty Boop t-shirts. They buy a bunch of Betty Boop shit. <laughs> like for whatever reason, certain mm -hmm. cartoons have this sort of stickiness, you know, yeah. there's like Nancy, there's Betty Boop, Nancy there's Pepe, also, oh, yeah. there's Donald Duck. There's the, Nancy is I feel best. like Nancy, there's so many Nancy memes. Like Nancy <laughs> Bring memes me back on the pod. We can talk about <laughs> Nancy. <laughs> for, but yeah, yeah. I did ever tell you that I used to work for the company that did Emily the Strange. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's just a very weird thing with this, like, goth girl character. And they've mm -hmm. tried to, like, do other stuff with her. Like, they've tried to make a movie out of it and stuff. I'm like, like no one's, like, tried to turn her into a, a Nazi <laughs> Emily the Stranger. Because she's goth what already. What did you just yeah. do, yeah. George? Wait, yeah. am I giving people ideas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm hoping our listeners, right now, unless you were at Sundance, you have not been able to see Feels Good Man. I We're hoping you're going to be able to see it at some point. You can, for the moment go to the website. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, go to feelsgoodmanfilm.com and we are about to do just a world tour of every single documentary film <laughs> festival on earth, which is going to be a lot of fun, but we're doing, uh, this is, I think coming. this is a week of uh, March 2nd. Yeah. So, uh, so we're going to be at the true false film festival in Columbia, Missouri, which, um, I You've could been not to last year. Right. Also I am from mid Missouri. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. so I have to say true false is like the best. Mm -hmm. It's just like, if you are into doc, it is like going to Mecca. It is great. So it's a three day event. And so we're going to be, playing four different times around Columbia, Missouri. After Pat, that, yeah. we are going to South by Southwest. Um, we have two screenings there on the 17th and the 21st. Oh. Yeah, we're going to be in Greece. We're going to be in <laughs> Copenhagen. We're going to be in Brussels. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, and then after that, all over all over uh, North America. Yeah. We'll be announcing, so we just can't, we're under, you know, yeah. lock and yeah, key. We can't we'll, announce yet, but there's a lot. If you live in a city in America in the next three months, there's a very good probability that, we're going to be playing in your town. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, hopefully at some point streaming service. Yes. Who knows? 
Let's hope. Uh, yeah. But in the meantime, you have to go follow the website, uh, True False Film Festival. Invite Subdoc to come moderate a panel or there do a live game I'll put in the good word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, have you been to South by Southwest before? Yeah, I lived in Austin for many years, so okay. it's a nice return. I feel like when I've gone for music, it's like, oh, I hate music yeah. after two days of this. Are you, is that going to be a feeling at the film part of it? You're not going like, to my eyes are tired. You know, it's, I lived there for many years and I was playing music for many years, touring as a musician. And so oh, you did some sound on this film, too. Did you do? I did a little bit of music okay, on yeah, this one, yeah. too. But um, yeah, I mean, the running joke when I lived in Austin, it was just like, you're going to get signed at South by Southwest, like because it never actually happens. And, yeah. Uh, but um now it seems like there's more overlap between the film the tech yeah, world too yeah. and the VR so stuff too. It's definitely overwhelming, but I, I have understood that maybe they've dialed back like the the Doritos stage, <laughs> you know, and all this yeah. other crazy marketing yeah. conglomerate. Let's go play in the yeah. bat tunnel. Yeah, I do have to say, like, especially for Doc, like, you know, there are so many docs that get made every year. And if you are not, you know, there's a lot of Verite docs. There's not really like a place for Verite docs to be distributed. Um, you know, these film festivals are super important. So if you are someone that has like discovered docs on streaming platforms from binging them, like take a chance and go to one of these doc film festivals. Cause you are not going to see docs that you're going to be able to see anywhere yeah. else. It's really kind of its own cultural place. We're also people who are really passionate about documentary film talks. So yeah, I've definitely like from going to them now, I know that I cannot see five, films in one day but i can see four <laughs> um, <laughs> know you, you know you have yeah. to sort of plan it but um you know if your movie as a documentary doesn't fit into one of these like algorithms then you you know people say this is the golden age for doc but and that's true but really there are so many more docs to discover that are amazing yeah. that come out of sundance every year and then kind of like evaporate just because there's not like the uh the distribution equivalent um of you know like a criterion channel or like sort of these niche places um that otherwise exist for different genres of film yeah well we're we're working on that we're gonna like we got Heck some yeah. advertisers in the yes. pipeline yeah. let's do it. advertise on stuff talk you know we got your let's get that blue apron money baby. hardcore <laughs> exactly like i just like to have Square food space. delivered to me yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. hey no 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 sorry free plugs are happening right now uh but this has been a free plug for feels good man yeah, right on, thank, thank you for coming on the show arthur jones giorgio angelini thank also you so check much. out own design i watched on amazon prime i don't know where else you can find that one uh yeah anywhere you watch docs but amazon prime is probably the easiest yeah and Man. uh good luck with all the festivals and it's a great film i hope everyone on here gets a chance to see it and uh long live pepe <laughs> long live pepe right <laughs> on <laughs> thanks george thanks a lot thanks so much yeah thanks for listening you can find out more about subdoc at subdocpodcast.com recapping reality since 2015 our theme song was written by David Siegel and our show was engineered by Will Scoville. For as little as $1 a month, you can donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash subdocpodcast. If you want to help us in other ways, please share the show. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Find Paco and George's comedy gigs on the About Us page on the site. Subdoc is by doc fans for doc fans. So if you want to advertise with Subdoc, got a film or opinions, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you and what you're docking out on. Email us at subdocpodcast at gmail.com.